0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Right Care Baptist. I'm Jake Lancaster, an
1: internal medicine physician and the chief medical information officer for the Baptist system.
2: And I'm Amanda Comer. I'm a nurse practitioner and the system director for advanced practice providers.
1: And today I'm really excited to have on Lulu Sanchez and Kim Dannyhauer to talk to us about patients' rights and interpretive services. Lulu and Kim, welcome to the program.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you.
1: Lulu, do you mind telling the audience a little bit of your background and what you
0: do?
3: Yes. Uh, so, my name is Lulu Sanchez. I work with uh, Language Line Solutions, your uh, provider of language services, and uh, I am the vice president of uh client experience and optimization. Uh, My background, I've been in the industry of language services for 30 years in healthcare. I was an interpreter myself, and then the director of language services in a hospital in the Boston area, where I act as the manager of language services for 16 years. Then I work with different organizations, pretty much serving as a consultant to optimize language services.
1: Well, it's great to have you today. I look forward to um, jumping into the conversation. But first, Kim, can you remind the audience uh, of your role within Baptist and then maybe just introduce the the topic of interpretive services and why it's top of mind for you right now?
0: Certainly. I'm Kim Dannyhower, and I'm the Corporate Compliance Officer for Baptist. I have, for the entire organization, both the hospitals and the physicians, And I have been with Baptist. I'm just starting my 21st year in compliance with Baptist, and I've been the compliance officer since uh, 2010. And before that, I came to Baptist from Medicare. So I have a background in all things codes and regulatory and things like that. This is really a hot topic for me, interpretive services, because in the last few years, I've also started to deal with the discrimination. Section anti-discrimination, or more, more apt to say, from the Section 1557 of the Affordable Care Act and the Section 504 from the uh, ADA and we have 1964 Rehabilitation Act. And these both tie in really, really closely with this year's joint commission rolled out standard that says you must provide interpretive services so that there is better health to demonstrate your health equity for patients. So it's a, it's really close to my heart because I think it's important that all patients have the same right. And that includes being able to understand what their care is and being understand what they're told. And we more important as importantly understand what they're telling us.
2: That's great, Kim. You can feel your passion I come across. Um, so, could you provide an overview for our audience on what is a language line and how it's utilized in the healthcare setting?
0: Sure. We contracted with Language Line Solutions so that we would have a standard, exceptional piece, a way to provide interpretive services to all our patients, no matter what language they spoke. Because Language Line provided uh, over, provides over 240 languages, isn't that correct, Lulu? Yes. And it also, and that includes a ASL, which is uh, American Sign Language, because that also is covered. And it's also, it's actually considered it's a language. So we have that. And what they do is they provide interpretation, translation, in th- all those languages. At, in the present, when you're in the room, in the treatment area, in the hospital, even if it's inpatient, outpatient, we even have it at the corporate office. So, if you need to talk to someone about the business dealings with the organization, then language line is available to anyone who needs it.
1: Yeah, that it's great. I think you know, most of us are, are kind of aware that we have this capability. But can you talk about a little bit more about the, you know, the modalities that you might have? Is it is it a, a physical device that you would wheel into the patient's room? Is it um, a number that you would call, or or how, you know, how do nurses and physicians and others utilize this resource?
0: Well, the short answer is yes and yes and yes, but that's not very helpful. That is, we can you can call a number which are posted. Everyone is trained every year on these. all the nurses, we make sure to provide a kind of a remediate reminder training on how to get in touch with this. It is at the, should be at all the stations, nurses stations in the hospital, and there should be, it should be av- easily available. So you know what number to call. We also have iPads or, you know, tablets that can be rolled into the rooms or whenever so that they're there to interpret for the inpatient and the physician or
2: provider. So that's interesting. It seems like there's been innovation even in the language line in, in the last few years from the, uh, the landline versus the rolling cart, you know, the different modalities. So that's very interesting. Well, how does the use of language line contribute to improving patient care or outcomes?
0: You know, I think, Lulu, Lulu, you probably have seen this since you work nationally. Yes. How have you seen it impact care?
3: Yeah. So, well, the important is that when you work with a professional medical interpreter from language line, what you're doing is that you're ensuring that the clinical information is being rendered accurately, without omissions, without summarizing, and that the interpreter is qualified on the medical terminology and the knowledge of the profession's standards of practice and code of ethics. The standards of practice and code of ethics is what the interpreters, the professional interpreters uh, from language line follows. And those are the do's and don'ts when you're doing an interpretation, just to make sure that that information is rendered accurately. And what it does is that ensures that the patient understands what's going on with uh, his or her medical care and that the patient is able to participate under their care and make informed decisions. So that that is crucial because that's where people don't understand that if you pretty much do not offer that service to the patient, the patient feels completely lost. And then they're not able to say, yes, this is what I want to do with my care or no, that's not what I want. I still have questions. So it is extremely important that then when there is an exchange of medical information, that then the providers, whoever is having that exchange of medical information works with a professional medical interpreter.
1: Okay, I think that's really well said. I I want to get into some specific patient scenarios, um, and I'll start with this one. Um, you know, I took Spanish in high school and in college, I actually spent a, a month in, or a semester in Spain in college, and then actually did a month in residency in, in Peru, and then also um, did a medical Spanish class. But, you know, and, and so pretend that I feel like I am very comfortable and fluent in medical Spanish. Um, I, I'm not. I, I regularly use the, the language line when I go there. But just, uh, you know, maybe the couple of weeks after I was in Peru, I felt really, really great. But um Suppose I am seeing a, a Spanish-speaking uh, patient and I feel comfortable as as the physician taking care of that patient. Um, what are some risks and some drawbacks of me trying to do the translating myself, uh, you know, for, for a patient that might come into the hospital?
3: Thank you. That's a very interesting uh, question because it's a question that we get a lot from providers across the nation. So... Um, Let's kind of like go to first talk about what the Joint Commission has to say about that. That's what we will call a direct communication in language. So the Joint Commission is saying they don't have any standards that prohibits a bilingual practitioner from communicating directly with a patient in another language while they're providing the care. But what they're recommending is that organizations have a process to make sure that that communication with the patient in the non-English language is effective. And meets the patient needs. So, what do they mean by that? Because, for example, you're saying, "Oh, I took Spanish, I feel pretty comfortable." But you sometimes you're gonna get to some nuances of the language where you're gonna say, "Did I Did they say this or this? And you don't. Sometimes you're not gonna be able to recognize it. One example, because I used to do a lot of provider education, and I used to uh, show them the example of how people say high blood pressure. For example, in Puerto Rico, it sounds like depression. Mm-hmm. So when I kind of like give them the example and I say, when I say this and this, which one it is, and they looked at me and I said, yeah. we don't know what you're talking about. And I said, exactly because of the way people in Puerto Rico talked about high blood pressure, they say, sufro de presión." And depression in the mental health is being depressed, but in Puerto Rico, the depression means high blood pressure. So those little nuances like is like what sometimes people, when they're truly not fully bilingual, might miss in the whole communication. And we heard a lot about that when then... The process of taking care of the, the patient will take a different route depending on what you understand. And I remember also an example of a patient who was in the emergency room and the provider says, no, I, I my resident speaks Spanish. He's going to interpret for the patient. I don't need you. And the interpreter says, no, well, I'm not going to leave. I'm going to stay here next to you. I'm going to let the resident interpret. And uh, the patient was saying that they were on the sofa And like half of their their body uh, felt numb. But the way you say that in Spanish, it sounds like you fall asleep. So the resident interpretation was I was on the sofa and I fall asleep when the patient was saying I was on the sofa and half of my body felt numb. Mm -hmm. So he lost it on the part when he was saying because it's so similar to that word numb to Se durmió, which is like is falling asleep, but in reality, what it meant it was it was numb. So those little things that that the doctor and that's when the interpreter had to interject, and I said, hold on, the patient didn't say that he fell asleep. What he's talking about is half of his body got numb, which has a different connotation. In the yeah. medical field, so so that's why it is really important that then organizations do their due diligence. That in those providers who wants to speak directly with their patient, even though there's no standards of uh, uh, of uh, elements of performance or standards set by the Joint Commission, but that they take the steps to make sure that are you truly at, at what level? What what is your level of of the language that will get you to a point of like having a what we call more a comfort need conversation? than the exchange of medical information where the outcome of the patient can come at risk. So that's where you take kind of like those two concepts of the exchange of medical information uh, besides comfort needs, which is pretty much like what when we train in users, we tell them any conversation that is very general is about comfort needs. You have the family member, yes, you can ask the family member, anything that is going to have an impact on the decision And the outcome, the medical outcome of the patient work with a professional medical interpreter so you don't take the risk, you don't put the patient at risk, and you don't put the organization at risk. So that is the importance of working with a medical interpreter, because the medical interpreter, again, they understand the do's and don'ts. They know when to interject. They know when they're not clear about what they're about to interpret. So they know when to say, hold on, doctor, I am not understanding the concept. I want to understand it so I can render the information correctly.
2: those are great examples um very good examples so another question so what if i'm a a provider and english is not my first language and i have an an english-speaking
3: patient do i would i use the language line then So again, the provider has to uh, understand what are my my limitations and uh, to what point I'm able to do direct communication. So we have providers, like for example, we have a provider, actually, uh, this is an example, and he wrote about it. Uh, Dr. Ring from Mass General Hospital, he wrote a great piece called Mea Culpa, where he was fluent in Spanish. He was doing the interpreting for the patient that he was about to do surgery, then the nurse fell a little bit intimidated on not asking for the timeout, and the doctor ended up doing the surgery on the wrong hand. So, because the the provider was completely fluent, he he was able to do the, the, the whole communication, but the nurse, he wasn't interpreting for the nurse, the nurse didn't know what, what was happening in that conversation, mm-hmm. and she felt a little bit intimidated on telling the doctor, okay, so you're the doctor, you're doing the communication, I am trusting you that you did the timeout and that you know what you're going to be doing with the patient. And he ended up making that mistake. And he wrote a great piece called Mea Culpa. And it was a great article where he was then acknowledging that, oh, my God, like I yes, I was speaking directly with uh, with the patient, but I failed to pretty much kind of like maybe summarize or tell the nurse what was my conversation all about. So then she was standing there but only listening to the doctor and the patient talking, but no one was uh, uh, interpreting for her.
1: Interesting. So, um, yeah, I know, I know we have a lot of patients or a lot of providers that, you know, maybe were born in another country and are fluent in a language. Uh, what is this maybe for Kim? What is our process for getting them, you know, certified or whatever it is that is needed? Uh, test, get them to take a test that proves their um medically fluent in that language
0: well we're working on that that's where we're going to right now what we recommend and we really strongly recommend is that we have language lines in the room so to prevent the issue of the story that lulu told just told where if someone is interpreting in the background then they will have they would then know that the position the nurse and any of the surgical techs, for example, or anyone who's in the, in the room will have an understanding of what the physician just said to the patient, and that way everyone in the room is on the same page. And that's really important for us as an organization, that everybody understands so that each of our employees and everyone who's it, treating the patient is able to operate at the highest level of their abilities. And that's what's really important because it's the patient who ma- matters.
2: So we're talking about the patient and the patient's rights. Do the patient, does the patient also have the ability to refuse a language line? Yes, they do. And
0: uh, when they do that, we also uh, recommend and really strongly recommend that you have language line in the room. So that you can validate that it's being translated appropriately, and that there is nothing being said by the patient, because our right, our our responsibility is first the patient. And say, for example, the patient doesn't want some information shared with this family member. Well, we would never know that if they were trying to, if they were only being interpreted by the uh, family member. So. We need to be able to have a good. We'll always engage language line, and we're working towards. It's right now we're having it submitted to the Epic people to so that it can be added. Where if a patient refuses, we may we will have a documented understanding, but we'll also have a place to have the document number and then and the interpreter's name because we strongly request. And almost require, but I'm not going to go to the uh, completely require because we won't be able to make you do it unless you just understand why, which is this is to protect you as a provider, that we always have language line in the room, even if the patient refuses to have us translate for them, we can have them in there to translate for us.
1: So let's turn to another example. You know, the patient may have a family member that's there um and the family member is fluent in English and the language that the patient is um is their native language um what is what are the regulations surrounding that because you know it's most of the time it's more convenient I guess for the provider to just have the family member translate than to find the machine that will do the language line so how, how do we navigate that scenario
3: I can I can take that because I was like I had a personal experience about that, Dr. Lancaster, where uh, not only I was a family member, an interpreter yeah. <laughs> that also understands the do's and don'ts. And um and when actually I asked for an interpreter uh for my father. When my father was ill, I was taking care of my father, I was with him. And I asked the provider to get me an interpreter. The provider refused and I says, no, it's more convenient for me to work with you. So you're going to do the interpreting. So guess what? The interpreting was for the do not intubate and do not resuscitate. When I had to do that interpretation, I ended up crying because Mm. it was so hard for me to do that interpretation for my father. And uh, and the reason like he refused, I felt like I needed to do it because they needed to to get the consent. But it put like to this day. I still have a, a trauma about it, <laughs> to be honest with you, because um, I was there to support my father. I was there to accompany my father, to take care of him, to help him with uh, with decisions. But pretty much, kind of like the organization put me to work for my father when that wasn't the position that I was I wanted to be put on. So I think that is important that when you have a family member in there, you need to remember what is the role when they're there with the patient. And yes, it might seem that it's easier to work with them, but again, that whole family dynamic, it it is really important that because who's assessing that for the patient? So that's why it is always, and and that's the reason that you have now more options. Like like, uh, Amanda was saying, before it was the regular phone, but now you have the regular phone. Now you have the application where you can access an audio or a video interpreter via a smartphone via a tablet, a laptop. Now we're looking into, you also can access it via telehealth. Now they're looking into the electronic medical record integration. So you can ask for an interpreter through Epic or, and Cerner. So the industry is evolving on finding different options for the providers to make it very easy for them to access the interpreter. So then they don't have to feel that, oh, it's more convenient to work with a family member because they're right there. But many organizations are working, like Kim is saying, just to make sure that they can provide to everyone like the different resources for you to access the interpreter in a very easy manner. So again, so we can honor yeah. that whole patient ride of, good communication, and the ability to make decisions and inform uh, uh, decisions.
1: Real quick, um, you know, that was a very interesting story, and I'm sorry you know, that put you in that position, but what if it was the opposite scenario where the physician said, um, I'm going to go get the language line, and you said, no, that's not necessary. I, I can translate. What, is, what are the obligations there and the regulations around that?
3: Yeah. Like what Kim was saying, the patient has the right to refuse, but the patient needs to understand because, again, what she's saying, you don't know the family dynamics. And for example, like I go with my father and I say, oh, no, I'm going to interpret. But my father, he he doesn't know what is it that I'm saying. So the most important thing when a family member is going to interpret is that the patient needs to understand that they have the right to an interpreter, a medical interpreter, free of charge to them, they need to understand what are the consequences of working with the family member. And then Kim is saying, you guys are working into documenting that the patient refused uh, the services, but you still, the recommendation is that you still work with the interpreter. You can call into language line, tell the interpreter, I don't need you to interpret, I just need you to listen. So then as part of documenting the waiver, the patient refused the services after they understood that they have the right to it, understand the consequences. And then I think you have to go even further on taking that patient's, um, that family member or friend's uh, name and age, because you shouldn't be working with children. That is like the the, the federal government and the okay. state says you shouldn't be working with children. So, but that will allow you yeah. to be, again, I offer the services we documented it because they say no, we set out off this and we still document it and this these are the steps that we took. So but definitely they have the right again to to say yes, I still want to work with my family member after I understand all of these other components that I just mentioned. Wow, that's
2: that's really good information. So thinking about those critical situations, like in the emergency department, how do you or do you have any tips? for us as healthcare providers to ensure that effective and accurate communication when using the language line?
3: When it comes to an emergency situation, we usually, and and I do a lot of training across the nation, and when it comes to uh, an emergency situation, people say, oh, you know what, they just got to the emergency room and they have uh, someone accompanying them. So, we usually tell them, you know what, Time is of the essence. You can start working with whoever is accompanying the patient because you need to understand what's going on. But in the meantime, tell someone, can you start getting me the equipment or the phone or the rolling card where you have the video for me to be able to call the professional interpreter? And whatever information you gather through the family member or the friend, then you have to confirm that information is, was rendered correctly. So, that is usually our recommendation. Yes, you can start with that family member because time is of the essence. You need to understand what happened, but still do that second part of grabbing a uh, uh, language line, calling into the services, and I said, this is the information that I got up to this point. Let's confirm this, either with even with the family member and the patient again, just to make sure That again, you understand what's going on and that everything was done correctly and that you have the correct information. Accuracy is the most important thing in healthcare for you to be able to uh, decide what are going to be the next steps with the patient.
1: You know, so that got me thinking. I I think a lot of us are are pretty confident if we call the language line and ask for, you know, a Spanish translator that we can connect really quickly. Um, What if you have? you know, some rarer language, um, what is the expectation for the, I guess, turnaround time or availability of a translator for um, something that is not as common?
3: So uh, that's what we call languages of lesser diffusion, like think about the uh, wool of Bantu languages mainly uh, that you find in the Pacific Islands on the Africa. So those are kind of like languages of the lesser diffusion. And, uh, and again, like Kim was saying, we cover over 240 languages and usually are, we call them the SLAs, the, the, What we, what we kind of like count as to how long it takes to connect to an interpreter. And when we think about Spanish, we usually connect uh, in less than 15 seconds. Then when we uh, talked about our next tier of languages, which still are top languages is about 60 seconds. And when it's about languages of lesser diffusion, it might take about like uh, two minutes uh, to get to an interpreter. But for the most part, even with the languages of lesser diffusion, we're usually connecting over, uh, overall. Or, uh, less than 60 seconds
1: okay so less than 60 seconds you know because i wasn't necessarily thinking of languages that they are, are extremely rare though you know that's good to know um that that would be around 10 minutes but you know even just some main languages that are just not as common in the united states maybe something like russian you know or 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 chinese even you know would Curious as so, those are all less than 60
3: seconds. Yeah, yeah, because again, if you think about it, when we're covering more than 240 languages, we're ready to take the top languages, what we call then our secondary tier of languages, and those languages of lesser diffusion. Like think about in Mexico, uh, Mixteco. You think about Guatemala, Mam, Quechua, which are languages that we're not seeing commonly, but yes, we're serving in uh, those languages.
1: And and then you you touched on this earlier, but there's nuances to every language, depending on where they're from, especially I guess with, with Spanish. Um, what is the expectation, you know, or how do we know as as the provider that I'm gonna get an interpreter that knows the nuances of, you know, what were you saying, uh Puerto Rican versus yeah. um, you know, Mexican or, yes. or Peruvian? You know, how
3: so no, that comes with the experience of the interpreter. Like for example, like uh, when I used to interpret, I'm from Puerto Rico, but I used to interpret to, uh, for a lot of people from Central America. So you learn the terminology as to like how people say, for example, the bottle of a baby. The way they say it in Puerto Rico is totally different as how they say it in South America and in Central America. And with experience, you learn not only you learn the medical terminology, but you also learn all of those words. And the most important thing is that as an interpreter, we don't make a assumptions. When in doubt, we say, hold on, uh, doctor, this is the interpreter. I need to ask a question to the patient because I didn't understand something. And then the same way that we ask the doctors to clarify things for us, we do it from the patient just to make sure that we're understanding what is it that they're talking about. And then again, you you keep learning new words as you get that uh, clarification from patients.
1: I mean, it is really interesting. I had a resident um, with me at, at UAB, who who was born in Panama, um, but I, I think he spent the majority of his childhood um, in the United States, or at least the second part, high school and above. And but he was fluent in Spanish. And then I had another resident who was from Peru, and we had a Spanish-speaking patient. And the uh, the resident from Panama thought. You know, got got tripped up a little bit at one point when he didn't understand um, some concept, but the the one from Peru did in that case. And so it was it was eye opening to me that even somebody that was, you know, grew up uh, in a Spanish speaking country um, could. I guess, <laughs> uh, fail to interpret the way I would have been expected.
3: And it's because of that the way people will call different things and and I remember one example with a patient who came from a remote area in Honduras and then he was selling, um he was trying to tell me that he had kind of like a some type of ball in his uh, tongue but the way he called it it was chibolillo. I've never heard that word. But again, I didn't make an assumption. Even though he was pointing, I didn't tell the doctor in a very general, well, he has something on his mouth. No. I went and I asked the patient, what do you mean by the word shibboligio? Because I've never heard that after I told the doctor that I was going to get that clarification. He explained and then I was able to interpret then correctly and accurately to the doctor for the doctor to go and check that shibboligio, which pretty much was like a little lump uh, on his mouth. Very
2: interesting. So we talked a lot about the positives, but are there any potential drawbacks or limitations to using a language line? I don't.
3: I don't think that there's any drawback because when you think about the positive of again making sure that the patient is being understood, which is the most important thing, uh, I, I don't see any drawback on working with that professional interpreter or using uh, our services because again, with everything that we're doing with technology and uh, Finding different ways to make it very easy for for the providers or whoever is caring for the patient to access the interpreters. Um, I don't think that is there's more positive than anything negative. Again, some people will say, "Oh my God, I have to get the phone. Oh my God, I have to get the access information." But like Kim was saying, education is what we do. We do a lot of education. We partner with a with a Kim and team to do training. The same thing that we do with all our partners that we work with, and we usually talk to them about the most important thing is creating that education so we can help you be in compliance with the federal government, with 5057, with the state requirements. Some even organize a, a, a states also have city requirements in around language services. And, and all of this at the end of the day is not to force people to, how you call it, to access the services, but pretty much is telling them this is a human being that wants to communicate and this is a human being that wants to be taken care of and wants to be able to tell you this is what I feel. These are the questions that I have. I want to participate on my care.
1: Yeah. So maybe we can close with talking about the technology piece a little bit more. Um, you know, that was maybe the first time I'd heard that language line could be integrated into Epic. Um, I wasn't aware of a smartphone app. Is that something that we have access to right now that I could just download and use, um, through my own phone? Um, go ahead.
3: Yes. So, um, all, all of those things need to, it takes a little bit uh, longer to kind of like implement it organizations because we have to, uh, when we usually, um, roll out this in organizations, that's a conversation with a champion, someone like Kim, what sort of like, uh, resources you have in your organization? Do you have a smartphones that are managed by the organization? Because usually when we roll out into smartphones, we roll out into smartphones that are being, being managed by the organization because they're the ones who can download the application and make it available for the providers. And we have done it. We have done it in New York. and based in New York. We have done it with one organization in New York that uh, actually they did it during COVID and they did it to 53,000 Phones, and they have been very successful because then that way all the providers had it on their phones and it was really easy for them to access the interpreter. Uh, so, but that is a conversation with the organization depending which way they manage their smartphones or if they have phones like Mobile Heartbeat or Boalti, which are the phones that uh, the nurses have in the units. When it comes to the uh, the EHR integration, the Epic integration, that is a conversation with your technology department because it takes a little bit of work on the technology side, Epic side, and then language line to do that integration and make sure that then we can place the the the, the button pretty much in your Epic for you to be able to connect to a audio interpreter or a video interpreter via your laptops, if you're using Robbers, if you're using Haiku, which is like the different applications that Epic has available in the different devices. And um, so that conversation with the people in your organization that has EPIC, they have to set it up uh, on your end. We do several testings until we make it work. And the beauty of the EHR integration or the EPIC integration is that any data that, for example, Kim wants to collect from you guys in terms of like maybe the location where you're calling from, the medical record number of the patient, uh, all that data is passed to LanguageLine. So then when Kim gets her bill, then she gets that information in her bill and you don't have to enter it because Epic is gonna send it to us. And kind of like the other way around, let's say you're asking for an interpreter for me, I speak Spanish, as you you, as you ask for the interpreter, then we're passing data from LanguageLine to epic telling them Dr Lancaster at 244 pm on 823 work with interpreter 1234 because we are pass as you connected with the interpreter via epic we're giving you that information without you having to document that in epic then all the documentation that uh that is required to have on the patient's chart to demonstrate that you work with a professional interpreter then it's going to be already in EPIC without you having to manually enter all that data. And when the Joint Commission is doing a patient tracer, that's what they're looking for. Okay, so Lulu was admitted, she spoke Spanish, seven people came to see her. Okay, let's go and look at the documentation on these seven encounters. So if you do it to EPIC, those seven encounters are going to be documented with the interpreter number. So that is the beauty of the integration.
1: Yeah, that is that is great to know. Um, and I have one more question that may be a little hard to answer, but, um, you know, are you familiar with chat GPT and all these things that have come out that are, you know, supposedly able to translate uh, languages without, you know, a, a certified interpreter? Um, I know I've had patients, not recently, but, you know, a year or two ago, um, type a message on Google Translate and pass this phone to me and have it translated into English. Um, What are, you know, can you think of any future development that may be coming with that regard, with having real time translation um, and who are the risks and and where are we with that right now?
3: Well, some of the risks. Number one, let me address Google. One of the problems, for example, with Google is that that information is public, it's not private. So that is infringing on the patient's uh, right to okay. privacy because that information, as soon as you enter anything in Google, that goes, that's public. So, uh, But people naively use it to try to communicate. That's one thing. Uh, when, again, when I was talking about the nuances of the language, again, is the system is going to be able to understand all of those uh, uh, nuances of languages? Because people think about uh, artificial intelligence and chat TPT and say, oh, that's going to take over for the interpreter. I don't. think that in a, in, a, in the medical field, it might have a use in other applications, but we don't know yet. But I don't think that in healthcare, healthcare is so complex. And when you think about it, when we are interpreting, we are, we have to learn another language, which is the medical terminology. For you, is second nature because you went to school, you learned all that medical terminology because you went to medical school. The interpreters didn't, so they're learning another language. So think about training a computer to try to do that interpretation Accurately, without omissions, without summarizing, without making the assumptions that I was talking about, and then understanding what are the standards of practice and the code of ethics that an interpreter has to follow. The machine is not going to know uh, uh, any of that. So, uh, but we're being be, uh, very vigilant and looking at that. And and there's those advancements again. As we see, and, and we have been testing with that for years, kind of like seeing where is the technology going with all of that. And that's the fear even of interpreters. Like we just have to be mindful that, yes, it is there. The technology is advancing. But I think that some of the, the risk with that is like if it's truly going to help you have that accurate communication, and truly you're going to be able to do that um, diagnosis and make decisions. And also think about it the whole uh, concept of writing, the literacy of the patient. Not everyone yeah. knows how to read and write, and that is an assumption that, that uh, sometimes we make of people, and, and it might not be there because depending on their level of education, uh, we also have to take that into consideration.
1: No, that's great info. Um, You know, I I know we're running up on time, but do you or or Kim have any closing thoughts or comments you want to share with the medical staff?
0: I just want everybody to know that we offer this because we want to do the right thing for the patient and protect the providers, protect the patients, and protect the organization. And that's that's all we want to do. So when we ask that you use language line, it's not an affront to anyone's level of uh, ability, but it's more as a protection for all of us.
1: Well, thank you. Um, and, and thank you, Lulu, for joining us. It's been a really great conversation. Thanks, everybody, for listening to Right Care Baptist. Remember, if you follow the link in the show notes, you can redeem this episode for seeing me credit.
3: Thank you for having me. Thank you.